Our reading is 2 John, and it's only 13 verses. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and which will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray, allow your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to it, see the truth of it, uh, see where our lives do not conform to your desires to your instructions. We ask you, Lord, to teach us, guide us, lead us uh, into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's address the first and perhaps only controversy we have in this letter. Um, I imagine there are probably lots more that are lesser. But the first one is, who is this lady? And uh, all early commentaries, I would say nearly all early commentaries that you find, will regard this as a woman. And yet many of the more modern commentaries do not regard this as a person, but as a church to whom John is writing. He's writing to a church from a church, and he's referring to them both as ladies and a, a sister. And yet uh, I don't know that that is true. I'll go into some rationale as to why I believe it is really a lady. But I first wanted to um, bring to your mind, I'm sure most of you have seen something like this, but just a few days ago, I read a Facebook post from a friend. And now what was interesting about this was I, I saw it, and it was like she'd posted it a minute earlier, and so I was the first one to respond to it. But it was three pictures, and the uh, request was, what do you see? Do you see animals or do you see people? And so I saw animals. I saw a dog, a cat, and a rabbit. And so I responded, animals. And then, you know how when you respond to something like that, you get all the updates. And so over the next day, everybody else that responded, all they saw were animals as well. And so it took me a while to see people. I kept looking at it, looking at it, and then suddenly you see that the animals that you see almost look like a hole in smoke. 
but the people are on the periphery, and maybe you've seen this one, but it's uh, photographs in profile, and you just see very little of their face, just the edge of their face. And yet, everybody was in the same boat as me. They could not see these people. Yet, you look for them, you find them. And uh, now, of course, when I see that picture, I can see both. You can flip, flip, you can just see one and the other. You've all seen probably the picture, the drawing of the woman, and they say, do you see an elderly woman or a young woman? And then it's like, wow, the image toggles back and forth, and you can see one or the other. You can't see both at the same time, though. So all my Christian life, I would read this, and I would just think, John is writing to a lady. I, I don't have much of an imagination, maybe. But uh, then it takes commentaries to really let me know that there are other people that think that there's much more to this. And uh, yet, after studying it from both perspectives, I think viewing it as a church is not the correct one. But I have to admit that now when I read it, it just pops into my head. I see both now, and I don't think I'm ever going to not see that. But for various reasons, I believe it is a real woman. Um, I won't go into all the arguments for or against it, but one that just pleads with me is that in verse 5 he says, and now I plead with you, lady. If he's writing to a church, this just seems out of context. It seems wrong. If you're writing to someone who you're pleading with, then I would think you're writing to a person. You're not writing to an institution, an entity, a big, big group of people. Um, and the other one is that when you read Second and Third John, they are parallels. They're twins. And so I'm thankful that we'll go into Third John next week. And so Second and Third John are twins. And it seems odd that John would have the one be very different from the other, even though they're very, very similar. Now, also, I was telling Gary before the service, um, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where the church is referred to as a sister. And yet, in our culture nowadays, we often refer to churches as sisters. We refer to the other churches in the CPC as our sister churches. But... I don't see that in Scripture. Now, it may have taken off early in the church era. I haven't done a study on that. But yet, we, I believe, are imputing it to Scripture when we see it. It's easy to do that because it's so prevalent now in our present culture. So for that reason, I, I just view it as a lady, and I'll proceed uh, uh, with it being a lady. I hinted at the fact that there are lots of similarities between 2nd and 3rd John, and I want to go through them. Um, in your handout, you can see that there is a question related to a lot of these similarities. And so if you are one to want to fill out my little questionnaire there and turn that into me later and be quizzed for a score, then do so. But I'll try to give you all the answers. We'll see if I do. Um, first, each of the letters starts with a greeting. Each of the uh, letters ends with a farewell. And in the middle, there is this body of the letter that each consists of three parts. So in each greeting, we start with the elder. The word truth is used in each greeting repeatedly. It's used five times in 2 John and four times in 3 John. The phrases love in truth and walk in truth are used in both. And both greetings include the phrase rejoice greatly. So again, the greetings are practically identical, many, very similar in many respects. I'll, I'll go to the farewell next. These are even closer than the greetings. Many things I want to write to you, but not with paper or pen and ink. He wants to speak face to face with them instead. And then he closes with greetings from friends and family. 
It's only two verses in each, but they have all these similarities. The content is also very similar. Now, this is not an obvious uh, unless you study it, I think, but once you've studied it, it's like the faces. You just see it. Boom, 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 boom. So, the first part in 2 John, you have in verses 5 and 6, where John defines a standard for them, for this elect lady and her children. He defines the standard of love and hospitality. In uh, 3 John, it's a little bit longer, but it's verses 5 through 8, the same thing. He defines a standard. He sets it up. Then the second section, the middle heart of each letter, he introduces a villain. And so in our text, he introduces deceivers and antichrist. They're the villain of our story. In 3 John, he introduces a villain by the name of Diotrephes. So each letter has a villain at its heart. And then in the third part of the main body, he tells you how to oppose the villain that he's introduced. And so he's not leaving you without recourse. He tells you this is what the villain, who the villain is and what they want to do, this is what you must do to fight them. Now, similarities, yes, there are all these similarities that we've gone through, but there are some fundamental differences that aren't, again, obvious at first glance. But I'll get into a little bit more of the details later, but I want you to think of these phrases that Paul has made us grow accustomed to, and they are put off and put on. So think of 2 John as John instructing this lady in put off. He wants some behavior or actions to end or thinking. And in uh, 3 John, it's put on. Do what you're doing, continue to do what you're doing. Now, each letter has a little bit of both, but yet by far the emphasis is putting off and putting on. Now, there is a word diagram that I gave you at the end, and this would perhaps be better to uh, review next week, but I wasn't quite sure how much content I'll have this week versus next week. I might have more for next week, so I wanted to cover it now. If you open this up and look, you'll see that there are green words. So the top section is 2 John, the bottom section is 3 John, and you have the green words that are common to both, that are written very large. Love, receive, and truth. So both letters have that, these three words in common, quite common actually. But the pink ones reflect the emphasis of each letter. So you can see that in 2 John, we have Christ, commandment, doctrine, Father, and Jesus all prominently represented, whereas down below we have beloved, brethren, and church. And these, these word diagrams are very helpful. They immediately show you where the focus is. What is John's focus in this letter. So now let's look at the greeting. First, the very first two words of the greeting we have here, the elder. Both letters start with this same phrase, the elder. How many books did John write in the Bible? How many books are attributed to John? That's an easy one, huh? Just your whole hand. And so you have the Gospel of John, you have the three letters, one, two, three, and then you have the book of Revelation. Nowhere in any of the books that John wrote does he refer to himself as an apostle. Isn't that interesting? He was an apostle, of course. He knows that. But he does not refer to himself as an apostle. Like, like uh, Paul, he refers to himself as an apostle quite a lot, usually defending himself as being able to bring what he's bringing to these people. 
But John apparently felt he needed no such defense, so he did not stress or even mention that he was an apostle. In the Gospel of John, he calls himself a disciple, and that's in the very last chapter, chapter 21, in the last few verses. He doesn't really introduce himself much before that. In the letter of 1 John, just before these two, he, had, he makes no reference to himself by title, none, none whatsoever. In ours, second and third, he's the elder. And in Revelation, at the introduction, he calls himself the servant. Now, he introduces Jesus first, and then he refers to himself as a servant of Jesus. Now, we know that he likes writing dramatically. I mean, John was quite the writer. Listen to this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's how he starts his gospel. Christ, first and foremost, Christ. He introduces himself as a disciple in the very last chapter of this gospel, he writes. In the letter of 1 John, this is how he starts 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Again, Christ, all Christ. John, when he writes, he places himself um, definitely second. You've seen that popular thing amongst the churches, I am second. That's what, that's what John was. He was so focused on Jesus that he himself faded into the background. And yet, here he begins the elder, the elder. And this isn't limiting him, he's an apostle, yet it does, I think, speak to the role that he is now performing in writing this letter to this person. He's an elder in this woman's life, and he's bringing this wisdom as an elder, this shepherding wisdom to bear in her life. When we come to the Bible, you have to remember all of the W questions, all the W words, who, what, when, where, why, who, what, when, where, why, and sometimes we throw in how. But who, what, when, where, uh, why are important words when you're trying to figure something out like this. And so what I want to start out, give you a few simple ones, is who is writing to whom? Who's writing the letter? The elder. We know it's John through, through uh, typically tradition. Apostle John wrote to this lady and to her children. Now, what can you infer from what I just said? that this is the elder, John, writing to this woman and her children. The first question that should come to everybody's mind is, where is the man? Is there a husband? Is there a father in place here? We don't know. The text doesn't give us, but we know that there are then theories. There must have been a husband. We know that there must have been a husband. And so where is he now? Did he run off? Did he die? Maybe there wasn't a husband. Maybe they'd never married. Maybe they had these children together years ago before they came to the Lord. And maybe she only came to the Lord. Maybe she's only the believer. The husband was not, ran off. We don't know. But it's good to ask these questions. See if the text can answer them for you. Why? Why is John writing this letter to this woman? Why is it important that he do so now? He tells her that he wants to see her face to face. There are many things that I can write, but this is so important that I'm writing you now. This is important. So, what are his concerns? Are his concerns obvious? 
Are they obvious in the letter, or are they hidden? Do you have to read between the lines? Now, reading between the lines isn't always bad. You can figure things out sometimes, but you just can't read way too much between the lines. So now, is he openly concerned about this woman? Does he express his concerns right above board? Or is, does he very gently hint at problems? And so we'll cover that a little bit more later, but think about Paul writing his letters. Was Paul subtle in addressing the Galatians? No, no. He was very unsubtle in addressing the Galatians. Was he subtle in addressing the Corinthians? No. He covered a lot of issues with the Corinthians, and he was very blunt and candid with them. But just last week, when we covered Philemon, I would say that Paul was pretty subtle in the letter of Philemon, much more subtle than in the other epistles that you read. So there is sometimes a candor or a subtlety that you have to detect in the text. So that's all just as a background. That's what you have to think when you're reading these letters, especially something so short. What is it that John is getting at? The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. I don't know about you, but to me that reads like a very strong affirmation for this woman. He is wanting to let her know right up front, I am for you. I want what's best for you. And not only I, but all those who know and love the truth love you and want what's best for you. This is, I think, very unique. I mean, he's going overboard to express this to this woman that she's loved, that she's cared about. Now, I think that this may reflect, even before you get into the rest of the letter, that this is something she needs to hear, that she's not now experiencing this love from these others that he's hinting at. Verse 2 starts with the word, because. To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. So we're talking about love. Love is the verb. Love is the action here. Why? There, so there is this love, but then he defines why there is love. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. That's why John and these people love her because there is this abiding truth that is in them and in her and in John. That's why. This will make sense later when we get to the core of the problem in, in the heart of the letter in verse 10. Then, verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. John emphasizes in New King James a future fulfillment of this. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Now, we know um, through uh, many sermons on this and, and some booklets that Phil has written that the New King James, the King James and the New King James traveled a very different path to, into existence than did the NAS, the NIV, the ESV, they are referred to as the Byzantine and the Alexandrian text, just as a, as a simple way, A-B. 
And so A or the NIV, EAS, B is the, the uh, King James. And so there are many minor tweaks between these two paths of God's Word. One of them is this will here. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. In the NIV, NAS, ESV, there is no will. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. It's the common greeting that is elsewhere. And yet, I believe the New King James probably has it. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. This is a conditional blessing that John is bringing upon this woman. And look at 3 John in verse 2. This is one of Phil's favorite verses, if you don't know. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So John is making this a conditional blessing. He's only asking to bless them physically if they are flourishing spiritually. He doesn't want the physical blessing outpacing the spiritual walk, the spiritual blessing. So both of these then, if they are these twins as we think, it makes sense that both blessings would be conditional and future-oriented. Now, the next verse is really interesting. It can be like the pictures again, taken two ways. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. Now, this can be taken two ways. You might not even think it in the way that I'm going to suggest now, but I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. How can you rejoice greatly if only some of her children are walking in truth? Is that how we're to read that? Well, I think it can conceivably be read like that. For instance, what if John knows her? I would assume he does. He's writing to her. He's writing into a known context. What if mere months or a couple years earlier, none of her children were walking in truth? None of her children were believers. Now some are. This is a reason to rejoice. The one is found that had strayed away. The 99 remained there. You found one. You found one. Let's rejoice. The, you know, we rejoice when people come to the Lord. But I don't know that we have to believe that, and I want to also point out that I believe that there is a fallacy in logic if you immediately jump to that conclusion. So, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. He's only commenting on those he's seen. He's made no comments about others that he may not have even seen. He knows there are more, but we can't infer from this that he knows they are not walking with the Lord. It's a logical fallacy, but yet we, it can trip us up. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. I was, I'm going to use an illustration from Myanmar, and I'm going to pick on Trevor. He was picking on me in, in absentia. So yesterday, Miles, uh, I didn't go... If by some miracle of industry I had completed uh, creation of this sermon by Friday, I could have gone, but I hadn't. I barely even begun it, and so I wasn't there. But let's say I was there, and you weren't there. And so then I greet you this morning, and I say, Trevor, I hear some of your children were at Miles for Myanmar yesterday. Am I implying, can you logically deduce that not all of your children were there or that I didn't see them? No, you can't. 
Now, I know your family well. I know all your children well. I could know if they're all present, and I learned from Hannah, no, Nate wasn't there. Nate was, Nate was probably mowing, I imagine. But let's use the Kirsches as an example. Who, who of us would know whether all the Kirsches were here, there, or anywhere? Unless you count noses, right? Even, even they count noses. They do. I know that. So, see, we don't know. We can't speak equivocally that this is this and that is that. And so this sum doesn't necessarily mean that we ought to be concerned that her other children are in disbelief, in unbelief. We don't know. Now, that concludes the greeting. Let's move on to the uh, core of the letter. This, this is, I think, a very interesting letter. Now, I, I told you earlier that this letter uh, from verses 4 through 11, uh, it, or, I'm sorry, verse 5 through 11, play out in three different parts. And so we have this goal or standard of conduct that's introduced, we have the villain introduced, and then we have the advice given to fight the villain. And rem remember, too, think of putting off. When you're reading what this uh, is written to this woman, think of putting off. Gaius, in 3 John, appears to have opposed the villain. I I'm, I'm making a, a bold statement here. Verse 5, this is where he's introducing the standard in 3 John. He says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. His first comment to Gaius is a commendation of what he is doing to serve the brethren, serve the church. So I want you to keep that in mind. What is his first word to this woman? Verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. He pleads with her to love in truth. Now, this plead is not like we think. We think of pleading perhaps as begging, as, as something that panhandlers do, begging. But this is not plead of that type. This is more like... Uh, um, implore, I implore you, but it, it's a voice of authority speaking. It's someone saying, you ought to do what it is I'm asking you to do. There is an aspect of authority that comes with this plea. I want to read from a commentary on this text that I read online. It's called Eliot's Commentary for English Readers. And it, it gives a definition of love that's very involved, and yet I think it's uh, appropriate and beautiful. Let me give you this definition of love. Love is the Christian's moral disposition of mind which embraces all other virtues and graces. It implies faith because it is founded on Christian principle and can only be tested by a right belief. It implies purity because it is modeled on the love of God and has abjured the old man. It implies unselfishness because it desires the good of the other for his own sake and God's. It implies humility because it distrusts itself, relies upon God, and thinks more of the other than of itself. I want to repeat the first one. It implies faith because it is founded on Christian principle and can only be tested by a right belief. Now, this is interesting as a definition for love. It's, it's practically completely about doctrine, and yet... Wouldn't you know that that's pretty much how love is defined in the Bible? Completely by doctrine. 
There is an outworking of love. There are actions associated with love, but they spring up from the foundation, which is doctrine. John is admonishing this woman in terms of loving upon others, extending hospitality to others, to not just use her heart, but to use her brain. You can't just extend hospitality to some people. Not that they won't just take advantage of you, there's that, but it's that they're a danger to you, your family, your church. Because he goes right on to this. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So we moved past the standard and we introduced the villain. The villain is this deceiver and antichrist. What is their error? They deny the humanity of Christ. They deny that Christ came to this earth in the flesh. Now, we know that there are many heresies that sprung up in the early church, and they keep springing up over and over again since then. And yet, a few that deny Christ's humanity were the Gnostics. They regarded matter as evil. Why would God ever want to be in a human body? It just does not compute. And so they reject Christ's humanity. The Docetists, they regarded Jesus as a phantasm, as all spirit, no body. Anybody that you see is just an illusion. The Marcionites, they were ones that are the ones that kind of introduced the dualism into our world, that the God of the Old Testament is this angry, vengeful God, and the God of the New Testament is this God of love. And to justify their view of Scripture, they have to say that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. So there are all these heresies that came into existence, continue in existence, are constantly carried forward by many, and yet... It is those that John is warning her against, and so I would say it's probably those that he has at least some inkling have an influence in her life and in her home. Verse 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things. He's not talking about loss of salvation here. But he is talking about loss of treasure. We were commanded by Christ to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. And yet this woman is in jeopardy of losing her heavenly reward because of what she's doing wrong. In verse 9, he clarifies something. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So he makes it very clear that outside of Christ, there is no salvation, none whatsoever. I want to read to you two verses. I'm going to, I'm going to put them together. One is 1 Timothy 2.5, written by Paul to Timothy. One is Acts 4, and I'm actually going to read just one verse, and then I'll go back and read the whole context. But it's Acts 4, verse 8. Uh, spoken by Peter before the Sanhedrin. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, 
the man, Christ Jesus. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the Bible is unequivocal in saying that you must embrace Christ to embrace God. Yet how many billions of people live on this earth that say they love God, that say they serve God, yet deny Christ, hate Christ, have nothing but contempt for Christ? These people do not know God, the true God. And what Paul says elsewhere is that what they worship are demons. Because you either worship the true God or you worship demons. There aren't other choices. Why is it that we can say with Paul that those who don't worship Christ and yet worship, worship demons? Let me give you a syllogism. Satan hates Jesus. Unbelievers serve Satan. Therefore, unbelievers hate Jesus. It's just that simple. We sometimes are puzzled by how unbelievers who say they're atheists can be so angry at a God they say it doesn't exist. It just doesn't make any sense. If you really were to talk to them rationally, it doesn't make sense. Why are they so angry? Why does it rile them so? Because the God they serve hates Jesus, hates God, hates the true God. And so that bile rises in them. Now we come to the point of this whole letter. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, this doctrine of Christ, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Do not welcome him into your home. Do not greet him, for you will be sharing in his evil deeds. John is writing to a woman that I believe is given to hospitality, which is a good thing. But in this case, it could potentially be abused. We're talking about a time, and really until recent times, you had no concepts of motels and hotels like we have. You just couldn't travel across the country, around the world, and expect to find lodging. You had to provide for that somehow. And normally, you would build up, if you're a traveler, if you're an itinerant minister like Paul, you built up a network of friends that would support you, that would house you along the way. And John is rebuking this woman, I think pretty mildly at this point, but he's rebuking her for extending her hospitality to people that deny Christ. Perhaps she means well. Perhaps she thinks that she'll convince them otherwise. But Scripture commands us not to do this. And so some of us might think we know better than Scripture. We'll invite those Mormons into our home. We'll invite those Jehovah's Witnesses into our home. Extend hospitality to those that are living in opposition to the Christ. And what I'm telling you is that Scripture does not give you warrant to do that. Yes, you might lead some Jehovah's Witness or Mormon to Christ. Good might come from your disobedience, but it doesn't deny that you're being disobedient in that regard. 
I believe Scripture clearly tells us, extend hospitality to everybody on earth. We want to do that. We want to reach out to the lost. But yet, when they are wolves in sheep clothing, trying to tell us that they are Christians and we ought to welcome them as Christians, we must say, no, no, I can't extend hospitality to you. You are a deceiver. You are an antichrist. The Bible tells me I must not have fellowship with you. So see, God's Word defines the basis upon which we love others and extend hospitality to them. And He's telling us, don't do it in these instances. And let me use another, another illustration. I would have people stay in my home, PHF. We all pretty much have people stay in our home at PHF. And once, years ago, a man came, very well-known theologian, writer, yet I was really somewhat appalled at his character, at his behavior. He was bombastic, judgmental, harsh towards his son the whole time he was with us in our home a day or two. And I thought, I'm not having that guy come back into my home. Thankfully, he never came back to PHF. But at the time, I was thinking, you know, I have to regulate who I am hospitable to, who comes into my home. And so when I presume they're Christians, great, you know, the first one's on me. But if after that, I have doubts about their character, if I don't feel that I can reach them, communicate with them like a true brother in the Lord, then I'm not going to welcome them back into my home. Now, we might meet for coffee, we might do other things, but I'm not going to welcome them in my home. Now, there was another thing here that we have to clarify, greeting. Do not greet them or else you may share in their evil deeds. Now, at the start of our service, Phil greeted us. This is how we're talking about greeting. Grace to you and peace. This is the greeting that Christian brethren would give one another. Now, we have devolved to high, and so it's understandable. But this is what the, uh, the apostle, the elder here is talking about. John is saying, you don't pronounce your blessing upon these people. For instance, do you, if a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness come to your door, do you wish them success in their endeavors? No, certainly not. It's not like we want them to get run over by a car in the intersection, but yet we do not pray for success for them. We pray that God's hand of judgment would fall upon them, that they would be converted. That's what we want to see. So, there are opponents of Christ that claim to be Christians, and these are the people we're talking about. It's that narrow margin of people that we have to protect ourselves against and warn our family and friends to stay away from. Verses 12 and 13, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. So, John had warned this woman that, about how she was to make uh, decisions about visitors, and yet we know, because we're human, that we can be very resistant to having other people tell us what to do with our stuff and our time. We resent this. There is just this knee-jerk response sometimes, how dare he tell me who I am allowed to have in my home? How dare he? And so sometimes, even out of spite, we will oppose what is wisdom from God in this. And yet, we ought not do it. You know, we have to swallow our pride 
admit that we don't know all things and that we are receiving instruction from someone who knows better from the Word of God what's right and wrong. He says, many things I want to write to you. He says the same thing with Gaius. So we don't know what all those things are, but he knows that these are the most important ones that he wanted to share and wants us to be aware of. And he closes with this family greeting. Um, the uh, children of your elect sister greet you. Again, another reason to think, well, this seems like people. So I've already given you some of the application personally, how I've carried it out, and what I think is wise and right from Scripture. And so I would just uh, ask you to review this. Are you attempting to be more hospitable to people than God wants you to be? If there are people that you know that are heretical, now, of course, they might be family, and so then we, we, obviously that colors everything. But if they're not, if they're just good friends, be careful, because we know that it's the reason we don't put our children in the public schools like other Christians. They say that their children are being little missionaries, but no, your children are being little pagans, trained in paganism. What we need to do is prevent them from going into such an environment. They are not yet trained to be missionaries in the public schools. And so we want them to grow up, be nurtured in their worldview before they're faced with this type of challenges. So obviously the same thing in the home. This woman might have her teenage children sitting there around the table hearing this person talk about all of these things that are denigrating Christ. You don't want that in your home, not without protecting your children, preparing them against it. So now truth abides to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who know know the truth, because the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. The truth only abides in us. It's the Holy Spirit who, who knows that truth, who brings that truth into you, that allows you in, in many ways, to intuitively be able to differentiate between the good and the evil. Of course, it comes with training, but yet it also comes with a faith and an acceptance of God's leading and guidance. We want the Holy Spirit to make His home in us. We want to make His home in us comfortable for Him to remain. We don't want to put, be, be indulging in so much sin with impunity that we make the Holy Spirit uncomfortable in our lives. You want the Holy Spirit in here, and you want the Holy Spirit in your house because He will protect you from evil. We need that. We want that. And so let's love one another as God commands, doing and not doing what God's Word commands. And let's not think that we can be better Christians than how God defines it in His Word. God should get to define the religion that bears the name of His Christ, Christianity. And so we must embrace the Bible's definition of Christianity, not make up our own, not tweak it here and there. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote saying, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So we all must be very careful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this warning to this uh, elect lady. We thank you for the fact that it was being poured forth from a foundation of love. John truly loved this woman, and he wanted to see her serving you better than she was doing up to that time. Lord, this is what we do. This is why we preach. This is why we share with one another. This is why we minister in one another's lives. So we pray, please make your word 
the power of your Holy Spirit driving it into our hearts and minds, the basis of our beliefs. And please, Lord, convict us of error and have us to humbly accept uh, correction when it comes. We give you thanks for your word, for all of your many blessings. In Christ's name, amen.